welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Anne Friedman and Aminatou So about their book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Yeah. Do you have any um, big friendships in your life, Kate? I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> I, I anticipated that being your, your question. Yes, I've had a number of big friendships in my life. But I think it changes as you get older, right? I definitely had like my really intense best friend who we got tattoos, matching tattoos, similar Same. to I mean, Anne. You have that? I Yeah, similar. Yes. Wait, Matching tattoos? Matching tattoos with a, with a <gasps> friend, yep. No way. Oh my God. I guess it, this must be like a feminine rite of passage. Yeah, we did it on her birthday. birthday. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. I don't regret it. Yes, I don't regret mine either. So, okay, so it sounds like you've had some big friendships, quote unquote. Yeah, I think so. Though this made me um, really think about them more carefully than I think I usually do. I have already been thinking about them because I think quarantine makes friendships difficult. There's no like automatic way of keeping in touch. There's no easy way of keeping in touch. Like, you can't just go grab a coffee. So, How about the telephone? Uh, I hate the telephone. And yeah. I, in general, I don't really like keeping in touch. So maybe it's harder <laughs> for me. <laughs> maybe uh, something you have to work on in, in your big friendships. Yeah. yeah, that's my stretching. Which... Listeners will figure out what that is when we listen to the interview. But yeah, I, I do appreciate uh, in this book, it, it's kind of like a how-to. You yeah. know, it's, it's a story of a friendship, and but it's also about how to be a good friend in a more methodical way, I think, than, than I've seen it treated before. And um, I do appreciate that. Because I do think of myself as being a, a good friend, but it's complex and, and, and sometimes it's unclear, a lot of times it's unclear, you know, how to do that. Yeah, and it does get more complicated as you get older, as you said. All right, shall we listen to the show? Yes. Let's do it. Today we're talking to Anne Friedman and Aminatou So about their new co-written book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Anne Friedman is a journalist, essayist, and media entrepreneur. She's also a contributing editor to The Gentlewoman, a beautiful magazine, and she's co-host with Aminatou of the hit podcast Call Your Girlfriend. Aminatou So is a writer, interviewer, cultural commentator, and a frequent public speaker. She has worked in DC think tanks and the tech industry, and she co-hosts Call Your Girlfriend with Ian. Their new book, Big Friendship, recounts their close friendship, as well as their careers throughout the years, the challenges they faced, and what it takes to maintain a big friendship. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. I thought maybe we could just start off by talking about what a big friendship is to you guys. What does that entail? And how is it different than your just run-of-the-mill friendship? Well, you've identified a problem that became very apparent to us, which is we use the term friend to talk about wildly different types of relationships, you know, from someone who you were once close to, but you don't even talk to anymore, to someone you are kind of barely acquainted with and just following online, to someone you would 
really, you know, want present for your last days on earth, you know, someone who is truly deeply important to you. And we felt it was important to really draw a distinction and say, you know, a big friendship is that kind of intimate, deep, long running kind of bond that you are both invested in and willing to work for and want to be around far into the future. And other terms for a close friendship like this, like bestie or best friend, just felt a little too cutesy or a little too young for the kind of adult relationship that we are really writing about. And how did you two meet? We were introduced to each other by our mutual friend, Dayo Olapade, who the first time that I met her ended our friend date by telling me that I had to meet her friend, Anne. And so the second time ever I hung out with Dayo, she had engineered this meeting of the minds, if you will, to watch a teen soap opera, and it was delightful. (laughs) And what were the first things you noticed about each other when you were meeting for the first time? Well, first of all, Aminatu was wearing like a homemade shirt that was like spoke to the theme of Gossip Girl, which was the show we were watching at the time. I had lots of respect for that. I love a commitment to a party theme. But really more than that, it was everything that she had to say. I was just like her jokes were the funniest. Her comments were the wittiest. I loved her style. I just loved her kind of way of carrying herself and the way she entered this situation with a bunch of strangers with such confidence and grace. And I don't know, really from those first moments, she was someone who I wanted to know. Amina, what did you notice about Anne? I mean, this is very superficial, but I really liked her outfit. Um, (laughs) I think that's totally fair. Yeah, It's so telling, you know, I'm like, she is a woman of substance and style. I, yeah, looks great in outfits. It was delightful. She had a very bold lipstick color. I thought her jokes were the funniest. Obviously, like, Dayo loved her so much that she wanted us to meet. And so I showed up ready to play ball. And um, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we, it worked out really well for us. And in the book, you kind of talk about, I don't know, maybe what could be called like the honeymoon phase of your friendship when things are super easy. You're seeing each other all the time. You're walking to each other's house. And I think a lot of people know this phase of friendship, right? Like when you're when you've just met somebody and you're like, oh, this person is a really, it's like, has the potential of being my favorite person. You want to see them and you want to test that out. And eventually it becomes a little more difficult for you both. Can you tell us how you kind of moved from one to the other? Well, I don't know that it felt like moving from one side to another. I mean, Mm -hmm. one thing that happened in our friendship is that about a year or so, a little bit more, a year and a half into it, I moved away. And so it became a long distance friendship right at the point where we were very much in that honeymoon phase, as you describe it. And so that was a shift for sure. And, you know, shortly, I think a couple more years after that, we started this podcast together and began working together. And that was another shift. And it's hard to really say that there is some kind of before and after or a definitive end to that kind of new friend energy phase of our friendship. It really, in hindsight, is just that the friendship kept changing and evolving and in some ways expanding. You know, from a writing perspective, since this is a book that's in part about how to be a good friend, but it also has a memoir aspect and it's about your particular friendship, that early phase seems like the hardest to capture especially because 
if there's not much conflict and if there's not outside sources like a war or something that kind of gives like big transition moments, so much of it is just about spending nebulous, relaxed time together. And that's the really special thing about becoming close friends with someone is just how relaxed you can feel around them. But from a writing perspective, that's really hard to describe that kind of time because it doesn't have marked transitions or anything. So how did you guys, as you're writing the book, piece together the early part of your friendship? How did you recreate it? Were you looking at old emails? I mean, you do include some G-chats, but you know, how did you go about capturing that feeling? Oh man, nebulous, relaxed time is truly the feeling I'm trying to recapture every day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for naming that. It's interesting. It was both hard and not hard, I think, to recreate that moment because, you know, in the movie version of this is really like the montage, you know, the rom-com, like, show me the best hits, like, montage era of it. And I think that so much of those early days are really idealized, you know? So I know that for me, they were definitely like very vivid still in my imagination. But because we are modern women, so much of our relationship did play out in a digital way. And so we had a lot of emails and G-chats and weird Google Reader notifications Mm -hmm. to go through to really capture the mood of this moment. And it was so interesting because... Anytime, you know, one of us remembered something differently or we didn't agree on a detail, there was always a receipt for it, which is great when you were trying to fact check all of that. But yeah, I think that you are right. You know, it is a prevailing mood. It just, it feels very heady. It feels like you have a lot of unstructured time, which even in your mid-20s seems like such a luxury. I can't believe that we had it, but I think that it worked out for us in the sense that so much of our relationship was one where we were corresponding with each other or we were journaling separately. And so it was not super hard to go back to piece back like what those days were like. But it was truly a lot of just hanging out on each other's couches, like without bras on. It was delightful. (laughs) So one of the things that you try to do in the book is kind of theorize friendship and put it within other kinds of theories or other kinds of contexts. And I mean, there are several that stand out. I think stretching is one of them. Maybe we're kind of there right now where, so you move away from each other, but you are constantly keeping in touch digitally. And you talk about what stretching means in a friendship. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what that is? Yeah, stretching is the extended metaphor we came up with to describe the ways that friendship will at various times require one or both friends to sacrifice in order to kind of keep it going. And that sacrifice and extension of self can look really different. You know, both parties can be stretching, but can be experiencing very different things. So like when I moved away, it's, you know, we were challenged very differently by that, you know, being the one to move versus being the one who stayed behind. I think that we also want to recognize through this metaphor that it can't always feel equal in every moment. You know, sometimes you are going to be the one who is stretching for a friendship and other times you are maybe going to require your friend to stretch to accommodate a change in your life. And it cannot feel 100% 50-50 
wow, that was two numbers in a row. I cannot feel like <laughs> in every moment, but I think we kind of hope that over the long term, it does even out a little bit. Or if you are in a friendship for the long term, you can have the foresight to say, you know what, like these three years have been really hard for my friend. I've really extended myself in order to stay in this friendship, but I know that someday I'm going to need to call on her to do the same thing. So we talk about that. And we also talk about how sometimes you're the friend stretching repeatedly in a way that feels like strain. You know, your friend is not stretching toward you in a way that feels even remotely co-equal. And so it's just our way of kind of putting some language to the both the sacrifices required and some of the problems that can start to come up within a friendship. Yeah. And you bring up that I think in other relationships, this kind of work is pretty accepted that we know that we're going to have to do that with a spouse with a family member but with friends you might just drop it because is this worth the work and i think for both of you it seems like you know you really eventually decide that it really is and that's kind of an important reminder and to that point i love that the book starts with you on this friend weekend, you know, that's supposed to kind of be your reuniting, but there's all this tension between you. So it kind of starts at the pit of your relationship in some ways. And, you know, which is so common with friends. And that's why I appreciated you writing about it, that these kind of resentments or miscommunications or misunderstandings start to mount. And I don't think that that open communication, constant kind of fighting, let's say, or, you know, heated conversation is as normalized in adult friendships as it is in romantic relationships or family relationships. So we don't end up sharing every grievance with our friend often. I think that's kind of looked down on. You're supposed to do a lot of the work yourself. So I I wondered if that's more or less what started to happen with you is that as close as you were, you actually stopped talking about the way one was making the other feel that it was kind of taboo to say, you know, that really hurt my feelings, this hurt my feelings, that did over and over again. And so in the end, you just didn't talk very much about it. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is very accurate. We went through this period of just completely missing each other, you know, and misinterpreting each other, not understanding each other. And speaking for myself only, I think that I have now come to realize that so much of that lack of communication on my part is because there was a part of me that really believes that it is just like too dramatic to tell your friend that you are unhappy (laughs) and that, you know, I'm like, I know how that script works with your family and I know how it works with a romantic partner, but with friends, I was like, no, this is the thing that will really jeopardize the relationship is if you voice any kind of discomfort in how things are happening And for us, it happened like very gradually. The amount of things that we could not talk about, that bucket was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day. And it really took us years to realize that we we were really confined to only speaking about a few topics and we are people who work with each other. So we are we're constantly talking to each other, but there was so much that we could not talk about. Yeah, I guess I have two questions is, you know, do you think that working together was part of the complication of that? Because being collaborators is a little bit different than being friends. One, and then also just because for the show, I know that you get a lot of reader emails and comments about reader friendships. From what you heard, does that seem common that actually 
there is a lot often just completely unspoken in friendship. Well, to your first question about being collaborators, I think that it has been something that at times has really strengthened our relationship and at other times has complicated it and made it more difficult. I think from the earliest days we met each other, we were interested in each other's ideas to such a degree that it just felt natural we would collaborate on things. You know, like we made a blog together in those early days of our friendship. And we were always like scheming things together, even before we started the podcast. And so the fact that it is work, yes, it's true. Like we now technically own a business, but it started as just like a way of being interested in spending more structured time together. And that really didn't change. You know, even when things were difficult between us as friends, I think we both still got a lot out of the collaboration that we have on the podcast. You know, and also near the end of that kind of difficult period in our friendship, having this working relationship is what made it somewhat normalized for us to get some external help to really repair what had happened to our friendship over this long period of not really communicating. And, you know, I'm referring to the fact that we went to therapy together as friends, not as like coworkers, but the fact that some like tech co-founders would go to counseling together to save the business, I think normalized it and made it seem less like a weird thing <laughs> that we might do. So ultimately, I guess, you know, I don't think work has ever been like a net negative in our friendship. But, you know, it is difficult sometimes. Like right now, we are working together constantly as we like bring this book into the world in a way that is way more intense than the podcast. And writing it was a much more intense collaboration. And the threat I think that that poses is then we have to be a lot more deliberate about carving out time together that does not seep into work talk. You know, like that's where it gets difficult. It's not so much that we have conflicts with each other related to work that then creep into the friendship. That's not really been our particular struggle, though we have plenty of others. <laughs> <laughs> and just back to the second question of if you found it common among other people you talk to that actually hashing out more underlying grievances, was that common that people didn't like doing that or weren't able to do that easily? Yeah, I mean, it depends. We talked to a lot of people who, like, we definitely talked to some people who were like, no, no, I fight in my friendships, like I fight in my other relationships. And I deeply admire those people because <laughs> that is uh, not where I'm coming from in life. But I do think that, you know, one prevailing feeling or something that we heard a lot from people was that they just did not expect that it would be hard because we we're just all socialized to believe that friendship is easy. And it's something that you, I don't know, you figure out in like third grade or by high school, you like whatever kind of friend you are in high school is the kind of person that you, you are in the world. And no one really was preparing any of us for the fact that as we got older and that as we change and as we evolved as people that carving out time for friends would be a challenge and that figuring out how to communicate with your friends about things that you're uncomfortable by but also even just communicating to them that they mean a lot to you was something that like we just did not have a script for. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Amina Tussauds and Anne Friedman about their new book, Big Friendship. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Recommendation. 
We are joined remotely today by Frank B. Wilderson III. His latest book is called Afro-Pessimism, and Frank is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Frank, what book are you going to recommend? So I'm going to recommend, this is a little weird, the book that just came out. I'll be reviewing it uh, soon, but I know the author from being in grad school with her at, at UC Berkeley, and I've read a lot of her other works. Her name is Zakia Iman Jackson, mm -hmm. and she teaches at University of Southern California, and she just wrote a book called Becoming Human, colon, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. And so I was asked by the Mail and Guardian a newspaper in South Africa to recommend five books for their readers. And they just published this on the Friday edition that's called July 3rd to July 9. Uh, so this is one of the books I recommended. And what I put in here is that Rewriting the Pernicious Enduring Relationship Between Blackness and Animality in the History of Western Science and Philosophy, Zakia Iman Jackson breaks open the rancorous debate between Black critical theory and post-humanism. In doing so, her book, Becoming Human, demonstrates that the racialized gender and maternity, specifically anti-Blackness, is indispensable to future thought on matter, materiality, animality, and posthumanism. So this inaugural monograph both critiques and displaces the racial logic that has dominated scientific thought since the Enlightenment. And I think this is really important because there's been a lot of work on the posthuman, some coming out of University of California, History of Consciousness at Santa Cruz. And I think that Zakia is the first Black feminist and first Black person to actually critique this work so the title is Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. And the author is Zakia Iman Jackson from the University of Southern California, where she teaches. Great. We've been speaking with Frank B. Wilderson III. His latest book is called Afro-Pessimism. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Amina Chusso and Anne Friedman, authors of Big Friendship. Maybe let's talk about some of the challenges that you guys bring up. One of them that struck me that I think you talk about a little bit in the book, but that Amina, you have struggled with chronic illness. And I think that can really take a toll on a friendship. Can you talk about what that was like for you in terms of, you know, I think it can be hard to reach out to people and ask for help and it can get exhausting. And Anne, maybe you can talk about, you know, what it was like to have a friend who was in need and managing your own kind of needs and expectations in this, in that, in that scenario. Yeah. I mean, I think part of sharing that story is really trying to normalize the fact that some people are sick and people mm. will keep getting sick. I think that chronic illness is not more of a threat to friendship than like a lot of kinds of stretches that people can have actually. And I think that asking for help is not just something that people who are sick also have to do. In of course. Friendship. Yeah. Right. And so I hesitate to like categorize it as this, as this thing that is, it's, you know, it's like a, the, the third rail of how of how you do friendship. Yeah. Uh, I do think that I do think that for us, my getting sick happened at the same time as Anne moved away. 
And so a lot of the ways that we had learned to be with each other together really had to, like, we had to rewrite a lot of what that agreement was between us. Mm-hmm. And I certainly struggle a lot with even sharing information about like how I'm sick because I, I, I feel that I, I am entitled to that privacy and that I, I'm also just like working it out on my own. I think that what I've really had to learn in dealing with chronic illness um, in my friendships is that it also affects my friends. Like that was mm-hmm. something that was really surprising. I was like, oh, like I thought I was the only person that was made miserable by this. It turns out that everyone else is also collateral damage um, for for this and, and figuring out, you know, how to reframe the conversation of like feeling like a burden or feeling that you need help into you know, actually something that your friends like willingly and lovingly want to do for you. In romantic partnerships, there is an expectation that if someone gets sick, uh, you will stay married to them. We very much frown upon the people who leave. Um, <laughs> but um, Sorry, I just had like Newt Gingrich flash in front of my eyes. So that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think that in, in any other intimate bond, you know, with like parents or, or spouses or whatever, we, we have accepted that. Yeah. Like it's, it's not easy all the time. People can come sick into a partnership or they can get sick or, you know, whatever. And that, that is not a deal breaker. And I think that talking about it in a friendship is hard because we are just not as practiced you know, in what that means. But I think that ultimately it all goes back to that conversation of what do your friends mean to you and what do you expect out of each other? And we do not have great ways of communicating that to each other. Yeah. And I think I have often struggled with the boundary between um, wanting to let a friend with chronic illness know that I want to be supportive of them, that I know that they are maybe struggling with something that I am more than willing to show up in the ways that they might need me or want me to um, on one hand. And then on the other hand, not wanting to violate their privacy or, you know, barge into their home and kind of demand they engage with me when they are still processing something on their own. And that line can be very hard, I think, to walk in terms of when is it really like you showing support and making it okay for your friend to open up to you and, you know, forget even asking for something, but just share their like experience um, in that moment. And when is it presumptive? Or when are you jumping the gun? Or when are you kind of violating their privacy and their needs? Like that is, that's a line that's been tough for me. But I want to echo what Aminatu says about this not being a kind of especially difficult challenge within a friendship. You know, I am also very aware that even though I don't currently have chronic illness, like I know that there are lots of other ways that my friends struggle with this kind of dance between like, hey, I know I want to talk to you about this or, hey, I see this happening to you and also them wanting to give me space. You know, that kind of negotiation isn't isn't completely isn't unique to to chronic illness. And so, you know, I will say that we used it as an example in this chapter about the stretch, because I do think it is something that both of us um, in our different positions, you know, have gotten a little bit better at communicating about and negotiating in our friendship. And I think that that's another reason why we like this metaphor. You know, if you keep if you keep stretching a certain way, you're going to get more nimble <laughs> at it. Like you really you really can um, learn to negotiate things like this within a friendship together. I, well, you know, one thing for me that I feel like I struggle with in friendships is trying to always make it better. 
to look on the bright side with my friend to tell them, you know, the whole things are going to be okay or don't kind of telling them what in a subtle way, always telling them what to do. And um, a lot of times people don't want to hear that. They just want you to hear them out <laughs> and, and hear their own experience. And um, that is really something I have to actively uh, watch myself with, with my friends and, and something, and sometimes I, I agree, like I struggle to find the line. And I, I think, you know, uh, you guys, in writing about how race has played out in your friendship, it seems like that's a place, you know, where, where you'd have to use similar judgment of listening to each other and not saying like, Oh, as you mentioned, like, Oh, you're overreacting or that's not, you know, or kind of making, making, not making light of it, but trying to find, you know, the, the positive take. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you've experienced um, any of those situations, you know? I mean, I will say that interracial friendship is something that feels distinct from the kind of stretching we were just talking about in the sense that it is bigger than any two people in a friendship. It is as big as the society we live in. And so therefore, the dynamics of race and racism and in our friendship, anti-Black racism are always going to be present to some degree. You know, you can't hermetically seal off a friendship from those things as much as you might want to. And so I do think that we have made an effort, both of us in very different ways, to acknowledge that within the friendship. I think that the particular dynamic of our Black and white interracial friendship has required a very different kind of sacrifice from Aminatu than it's required from me. And in terms of the kind of learning about yourself, or like, you know, you kind of reference the way that interracial friendship is like, talked about as like this kind of like, oh, isn't it great? Like, shouldn't we all, you know, that is an experience that really only white people get to have an interracial friendship, you know, like I get to have my world expanded and I get to learn things that I was, that I have not, you know, absorbed through white culture, you know, thanks to my close relationship with Aminatu and with other friends. But that experience for them is often quite painful. It is, it is not a kind of like enriching like expansive experience the way that um, it can sometimes be for me. And so, you know, that trope of the enlightening interracial friendship is something that, you know, we, it wasn't even an option to recreate yeah. that in our book because that is not the experience of both people in this friendship. Well, I guess it's similarly, it's just, it's not, there's no way to kind of talk away the pain of, of racism or to justify it or to it, it's a situation where it seems like the way to be a friend is to acknowledge it and to help I mean not even to help just to sit with it to sit with the reality of it yeah I mean not to it, can you can you talk talk about how it's felt being friends with Anne in that way I would push you a little further in that I think that it requires more than just sitting with it. I think that um, it requires actively doing something about it because this moment is really interesting for me because I think a lot of um, a lot of people are having um, conversations about race for the first time in their relationships, and most of those people, I would say, are white. My experience of race is that I am constantly talking about it because I don't have a choice. And it's not like a, a hard thing to do or um, or something that requires like a kind of bravery, I guess. But, you know, I think that what was really illuminating for me in my friendship with Anne, and we write about this in the book, is that 
we are really good about talking about um, how race dynamics play out into the world. Like that's never been a question mark in my friendship with Anne of like, oh yeah, like what does she think about this particular incident or you know, like where is she spending her money and what businesses is she throwing her her money to? Like that is something that like we, you know, the politics of race, I think we have been, um, we have like a very good vocabulary for. Um, but I was also definitely surprised that we, like those same dynamics were playing out in our friendship and we were not acknowledging them. And that took me a really long time to wrap my mind around because I think that part of the the problem here is that I hear a lot from very well-meaning people that they want to just listen and that they're, you know, they don't want to take space. And I think that they don't realize that um, not saying anything is, is actually like you are communicating something in that silence. And also like my number one experience as someone who is friends with white people is that I just, I'm like, you know, I would just like, like to be the person who is not the one who brings it up all the time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I'm like, that's not a lot to ask. Um, it's really, it is really not a lot, but it is interesting that it's, you know, it's, um, Wesley Morris, the, the cultural critic talked to us for when we were writing the book about this like metaphor, that he calls the trapdoor of racism that really just illustrates the the limitations, um, shall we say, of, you know, like how familiar like black and white people can be in their relationships. But one of the things that he makes is that in most interracial relationships that involve a white person, if race is being discussed, it is often not because the white person is the person who is bringing up that conversation is never who is introducing it. And so I talk about the like push and pull of relationship outside, you know, I'm like, this doesn't have to be about race, like explicitly, but I think that we can all identify in relationships that we have where you're like, okay, like, I'm tired of being the one that does this particular kind of work, you know, and I would like, um, I would like to see my partner like get a little more, uh, nimble and enthusiastic about doing it as well you know no one wants to be the person that takes out the trash every single time so it's uh it's just something that I like I constantly it's such a good barometer I think for me of like where I'm at in my relationships with um people who are white is um you know it's like how often are they the ones that are bringing this up and how and and how are they reacting yeah that that makes sense well one of the ways in which you found to support each other. And I mean, uh, this was something that you had said to Anne uh, is uh, the shine theory, right? Which is if you don't shine, I don't shine, which is what you, you said to her at some point. And that developed into a whole thing into what you guys call shine theory, TM. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I, so I wanted to just have you both kind of talk about that a little bit and how you've how you might have enacted that, how it's maybe has changed since you first sort of talked about it and um, and how you might be doing it now, potentially when um, shining might be a little harder than usual for everyone. Yeah, and, and maybe just explain explain what it is. I mean, and since, since it, you are it, it, you articulated first, maybe you can tell us how how you first came to it. You know, shine theory is just this idea, like you said, I don't shine if you don't shine, which is something that we said to each other really early on in our relationship. And it was just, it was just a reminder, you know, that we were invested in each other. 
I mm-hmm. think that in in every relationship, people try to to come up with a like a particular vocabulary to say like I am in this thing with you. And for us, like two women who um, you know care a lot about work and care a lot about our identities as people who care about work, it was important. It was an important place to reassure each other that we were not alone, you know. And I think that the the reason probably that this has resonated with so many people is that um, you know we're not inventing anything new here. People are people have been doing this for a really long time. Like like yep. choosing choosing people to invest in and choosing to collaborate instead of competing with them and choosing to, you know, buck up against the system and, you know, the stereotype that I think particularly among women that we like just don't get along and that we don't know how to work with each other, a very convenient, um, like sexist lie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that I, we had just seen it so much in our own lives that, uh, you know, it's like, if you are a little generous with people, uh, they will usually do the same for you. And that it's not, um, Again, like we're like we're not doing anything that is, you know, different from the organizing principles of a Ivy League education. It's just like hoard power. We are just trying to redistribute that power among like people who we think are also worthy of being recognized. Yeah, and it's it's in terms of your question about how maybe our articulation of this concept has changed or developed. It's certainly true that this was something that we were doing as well as saying in our friendship for a long time. But I think that as we started talking about it publicly and saw how eager a lot of like companies or, you know, like <laughs> empowerment conferences were, e- how eager they were to take this concept and just kind of slap it on their women's history month programming or whatever. Uh Um, We, we got a lot more deliberate about saying like, actually this is something you practice. It's not just something you say. And the way we practice it is, you know, we are open and transparent with each other about how we got to where we are and about the resources we have that we're able to share, um, provide like a sounding board when, you know, we're struggling we are, you know, very much about championing each other publicly. Um, and, you know, those are all things that like, you know, are great um, to do with someone who you don't know very well, or who's just an acquaintance, like, yes, it can still be powerful. But we really think that like, what's great about Shine Theory as we talk about it now, and how we currently conceptualize it is that it's really mutual and long term. And so it's this way of saying, I want us both to get where we want to go. And, you know, yeah, sometimes that's a professional thing, but it could mean setting up your life in other ways that you want to be supported. It could mean like moving to a new place or it could mean like mastering a new hobby or it could mean, you know, something you want for your family life. Um, Whatever it is, I think we really just want to stress that like it is a win for you as a friend when your friend gets to a place where, they are happy and healthy and fulfilled. And and that's why it really is this long-term concept too. Yeah, it's definitely revolutionary when so much of the way, and I think, you know, depicted and experienced female friendship is often thought of in terms of jealousy. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, you know that, that my favorite scene in, in Beaches I don't know if you guys know know that film where they're in a department store. <laughs> iconic, iconic friendship story beaches. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> very iconic in in my personal history. Yeah, and um, but but you know where it's 
there's where, where people's differences and career choices and, you know, having a family and not, you know, all those things are really pitted against each other. And so it, if, if someone has one, it means that the other person doesn't have it, you know, as opposed to being able to share in a friendship, someone else's achievements as your own. You know, mm-hmm. you know I, I, I think your book comes at a time where I feel like interest in female friendship is, is really still, after almost a decade, still really high. It's more common now, I think, to see um, women's friendship depicted than, than romance, you know, and, and possibly. It might, that might not be true. But I, I do think that it's, it's a story that people seem to be continually interested in. And I wonder if, if you guys just have any thoughts on, on why that might be, why the friendship narrative really does seem to have overtaken the romance narrative. I don't know that I agree that the friendship narrative has overtaken the romance narrative when I, maybe like one day when I turn on my TV and there's, there are just like more stories about um, women who are friends not used as a vehicle for telling a romance story. I will feel, (laughs) I will feel differently about it. But Uh I think, I think that you are correct though, that there is definitely, um, you know, it seems like in the culture right now of a fervor in like telling these stories. But I, I think that the reason that the interest is there is because there are so many more friendship stories that we're not telling. You know, I think that my, um, my, my hope for someone who reads our book, honestly, is not that they would care about the particulars of our friendship, but that they would actually start to recognize um, patterns and contours of their own relationships. Every time we talk about when we were writing the book and we would tell people that we were writing um, a book about friendship, people would tell us these elaborate, like very deep personal stories about the friendships that they were in. And sometimes it was about friendship breakups that they had had that were really painful. Other times it was just like extolling the virtues of their friend and feeling so special about it. I think that we still live in a world that really prizes like a romantic script for what like makes a person an adult, honestly. And I think that so many people are recognizing that they're organizing their lives a little differently or that they have a desire to at least. And no two friendship looks the same. I think that that is also part of what is going on here is that friendship, unlike a lot of other, um, uh, unlike other relationships, like are very, um, you enter into a, very particular agreement with another person and you can rewrite your agreement for however much you want and you can give each other space or not. And that is not necessarily a threat to the friendship if it's something that you are communicating about. I think that, you know, if friendship is really at the center of a lot of people's lives, it starts to really threaten you know, this like capitalist and very patriarchal idea that, you know, you get to be an adult via like being a parent and getting married and, you know, like having a a white picket fence or whatever. And so, and I think that especially right now in the pandemic, so many people are rethinking like, who are the people that are the most important to them? And for a lot of people, you know, like one of those people is always a friend. And we do not have like good enough vocabulary for talking about that. We certainly do not allow for people to really shout about the person in their lives that is there that is just a platonic friendship and you know and help you organize your life around that person 
and there's not really a ton of institutional support or um, societal support either for friendship. And so this is all a roundabout way of saying that I think that until we tell every story of every friendship, people will have like rabid appetite for hearing about friendship. Well, maybe just to close this out, would you guys tell us what was the last fun thing you guys did together, either in person oh. or digital? Oh, well, man. We really Can I say our digital thing? Please. Can I? Do you remember this? I mean, I'm, I think I'm asking you for permission, if you remember. No, I give you my permission. I give you my permission. <laughs> um, consent. It's really important. We, uh, we had a, like, a dance party to one song over um, FaceTime that has truly been the highlight of quarantine for me. Oh, my gosh. That sounds great. What song is it? We danced to... Um, heartbeats by the knife uh a song that we a song that we really love and i think it happened like very randomly we were definitely having a call about work and i do not know how the dancing started but i remember that very much as a thank god like i can dance in my underwear with uh with my friend even though she's thousands of miles away and um it you know i was like dancing together in the same room that is we're we're not going to have that for a long time Oh, I I heartily endorse anyone calling a friend, like FaceTiming a friend spontaneously and just putting a song on and starting to dance and seeing, watching your friend mirror you in that behavior and just having a moment together. Like, I think, yeah, I think we could all use a little more of that. It was, it was also really restorative for me. That sounds really, that sounds really nice. Okay. Well, I, I hope everybody listening does that calls a friend, puts on, you don't have to put on the knife. If you weren't around in maybe 2007, maybe you don't know who they are, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) um, but put on something and and dance with your friend and pick up Amina and Anne's new book. It's called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We've been speaking with Amina Tussauds and Anne Friedman, authors of Big Friendship. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.